0: Well, in case you haven't been able to join us lately here at Duke Chapel, we have set the lectionary to one side for the summer so that we can attend more closely to the book of the Psalms. Many people think of the Psalms as worship texts, but not really as sermon texts. I like to tell my students at the Divinity School that the Psalms are terrific texts to preach on. A few years ago several students responded by saying, okay Dr. Chapman but how do we do that? And I saw quickly that I had painted myself into a corner. So I put together a course with my frequent partner in crime, Will Willimon, on preaching the Psalms. Co-teaching with Bishop Willimon is, what's the right word? An adventure. You never know exactly what is going to happen. And one of the things that we confronted in that course was the basic challenge of talking about a poem. Because whatever else the psalms are, they certainly are that. Poems. You can talk about a poem. I mean, people do it. But there is always a certain limitation to such talk. Talking about a poem can spoil it. You don't specify the meaning of a poem by paraphrasing it. To articulate the full meaning of a poem, you just have to recite it. Poems mean what they are. The key thing is to focus not only on what a psalm says, but what it does, how it is constructed, and how it flows. Within the section of the Psalter appointed for this week, I've chosen Psalm 46 for my sermon text. It's one of the big ones, a well-known, widely used psalm. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the seas, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Selah. Now that's what I call aspirational language. We will not fear, the psalm says, even though the earth itself appears to be falling apart. The New Revised Standard Version nicely catches the extent and the urgency of the primal threat confronting the worshiping community by rendering four though phrases after the affirmation we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake, though the waters roar, though the mountains tremble. That's a whole lot of shaking going on. Yet throughout it all, God remains our refuge and our strength a very present help in trouble. Martin Luther was so impressed by the idea of God as a strong refuge in the first verse of Psalm 46 that he penned A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a marvelous hymn that pretty much ignores the rest of Psalm 46. The Hebrew word mahaseh is not so much a fortress as a protected covering or shelter. The psalm's first stanza is followed by two more, the second of which begins, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And then a third containing a divine command, Be still and know that I am God. Both of these stanzas, the second and the third, end with the same refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And this time, a different Hebrew word, meskav, is used for refuge, a word connoting a high, inaccessible place. Citadel would be a nice translation. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our citadel. And just this way, Psalm 46 is beautifully constructed, its form reinforces its meaning. At a moment of great turmoil, when the earth itself seems to be coming apart, God's commitment to God's people is secure. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter, the psalm says. Yet God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. But God is not only protective in this psalm. God is not passive in the face of injustice. God utters God's voice. God brings desolation on the earth in response to the wickedness of worldly nations and kingdoms. God does so Not to prolong suffering, but to end it. God makes wars cease to the end of the earth, the third stanza of the psalm explains. God breaks the bow and shatters the spear. God burns the shields with fire. God's overriding purpose is peace. God opposes the weapons of war and those who would use them to corrupt the goodness of God's creation. And what is the unexpected, remarkable word from the Lord about what we are to do, how we are to respond to all the turmoil around us The daily outrages, the never ending scandals, the deaths of the innocent, and the obscene self justifications of the guilty. How should we position ourselves in the urgency of our present crisis? Be still, God says. Be still and know that I am God. Stillness here is not about the absence of sound or movement. The divine imperative means something like, let it go, drop it, relax. Refrain. Refrain from what? It's crucial to notice that be still is paired with the words and know that I am God. That is, being still means acknowledging. God and God's sovereignty over the world, unlike the nations who seek control for themselves and generate destruction, God provides support, protection, and help for God's people each new day. To acknowledge God, to know God, is therefore to refrain from From the calculations made by the nations in which God is not acknowledged. The nations rely on themselves. They have only military solutions to offer. They represent the folly of self determination. The nations are like a drop from a bucket, the prophet Isaiah says. They are dust on the scales. To be still in the sense in which Psalm 46 means it is to resist the temptation to seek self-advantage or to place ultimate value in political initiatives. And even more, to respond affirmatively to God's gracious offer of loving-kindness. Our hope is in the Lord. According to a rabbinic tradition, the psalm appointed for a given day in the Jerusalem temple was recited in three parts, and after each part, there was a pause during which two priests blew trumpets and the worshipers bowed down in prayer. That pause seems to have left a trace of itself in the curious word selah now appearing in the Psalter. Psalm 46 is a good example of this, since it consists of three stanzas, and each one of those stanzas ends with Selah. In singing Psalm 46 in the service just now, we introduced a real pause where the word selah appears in keeping with this ancient practice. No one really knows what selah means, which is why modern translations just transliterate the word rather than translating it. In one of the first churches I pastored, there was an older gentleman whose first name was Sila, which always struck me as a weird but wonderful name to give a child. The word may just mean pause, or perhaps something like lift up or exalt. Perhaps a call to worshipers to lift their voices in praise. The word does appear to be some type of instruction. What intrigues me about it is not only how its meaning in the Psalms is never explained, but how, to judge from the rabbinic description, it stands not merely for a pause, not only for silence, but for a ritual movement in which the psalmic words just heard would be subject to further reflection on the part of the worshippers present and in turn evoke prayers of their own. All that is missing in the scriptural text as it has come down to us, however, all except for the funny word selah, which now serves as a pointer within the psalm to something outside the psalm itself, something that remains unspecified. This term Selah is something in Scripture that Scripture does not choose to make explicit, to put into words. The Bible is a very chatty book, it contains a lot of speech and dialogue. In the typical biblical story, a couple of people show up at a certain place and exchange words. And then they leave. And that happens over and over and over again. The pattern highlights the importance of what is said. The importance of speaking. God too, it seems, has a lot to say. The Bible is called the Word of God for a reason. But the Bible also has its silences. And because of the predominance of words and speech throughout the Bible, its silences tend to catch us off guard and unprepared for them. One of those moments occurs in today's gospel lesson when Jesus is arraigned before Herod. Luke tells us, Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. I suspect that most of us will find this turn of events peculiar, puzzling, even downright offensive. Jesus has been falsely accused. Jesus is fighting for his life. This is his chance to put things right and to put Herod in his place. But Jesus gave him No answer. When Elijah finally got the audience he wanted with God, what he encountered was the sound of sheer silence. We tend to think of silence as the absence of sound or speech. But in the Bible, it seems, silence can also speak. Silence is another form that God's word may assume. Frederick Buechner has also written of how truth can be present in silence. Not an ordinary silence, he says. Silence is nothing to hear but silence that makes itself heard if you listen to it. Jesus will often go off by himself to be alone and pray. The silences within Scripture are not omissions or exceptions or concessions but another mode in which God can be and will be known, a silence that makes itself heard. I don't know if it has been your experience, but I have noticed a palpable sense of stillness during these long months of quarantine. Much of the normal city noise, the traffic, and the far-off din has been noticeably gone. I've heard other people mention it. I've seen news reports detailing the stunning improvement of air quality in major cities and the recovery of threatened wildlife populations. Even the wild animals in my neighborhood seem to have gotten bolder. I went out the other evening to mow the lawn and the deer in my yard were just thoroughly unimpressed by me as if they had forgotten that I could be a danger. I have found myself pondering this new silence and what it has to teach me. I'm a pretty good talker. I can readily come up with things to say. But the silence around me has been a reminder to listen, to listen to God and to others. I grew up on the south side of Chicago and I went to public school. I know some things about the scourge of racism in America. But now, what do I really know about the daily wounds and indignities of my brown and black sisters and brothers? I think I need to listen. I have comfortably progressive political views. But as a Duke professor with a secure job, at least I hope it's still secure, what do I know? about the realities faced by millions who are unemployed and those whose businesses have gone or will go bankrupt. I need to listen. In our highly technological society, the chatter is constant. We're always checking our phones to see who has just said or tweeted what. Maybe, just maybe, in the midst of our global crisis, there is a new apprehension of truth available to us not in responding in kind, not in adding our own shouts to the shouts of others, not in cynical bouts of verbal gamesmanship, but in listening and responding to what God may have to tell us. Listening and responding is what Psalm 46 commends. The stillness enjoined by this psalm is not a passive stillness, not inaction or quietism, but listening and responding to God, seeking God first, keeping the main thing the main thing. And when we listen to God, we will also learn to listen and respond to our neighbors. This kind of listening doesn't substitute for action, but directs it and fulfills it. It is possible to speak and listen, to march and listen, to protest and listen. But without the listening, speaking and marching and protesting will not succeed in their aims. There has perhaps never been a more important time for us to listen to each other as well as to God. We're all so sure we already know what we think. I would like to offer you a suggestion for your own spiritual discipline in the coming weeks and months. Take the Psalms as your model. When you find yourself in a challenging conversation, whether in person or online, and you are sorely tempted to express yourself quickly and forthrightly, stop. Say this to yourself. Selah. Say it to make yourself pause. Say it as a prayer. To God, say it to remember that other people like you are creatures of God and made in God's image. Selah. Say it as a reminder to listen to God and your neighbor. Say it to ask for God's guidance. Say it to throw yourself. On God's mercy. Say it to acknowledge God's loving kindness, which remains secure and unthreatened by world events. Say it as a sign of humility, since none of us is in the place of God. Say it to acknowledge your personal responsibility since we have been made free by God and charged to use our freedom wisely. Selah. Take Scripture's silence into yourself as God's word to you in this time and place. Say Law. And then, and only then, speak.